for a spine-tingling, nerve-shattering podcast featuring all your favorite monsters. You won't believe your ears when you listen to Monster, Monster Kid, Kid Radio. Radio. Here your host, Derek M. Cook, and his ever-rotating stable of guests discuss your favorite classic and sometimes not-so-classic monster movies. Subscribe to Monster Kid Radio through iTunes or Stitcher, or visit monsterkidradio.net before the next weekly episode of Monster Monster Kid Kid Radio. Radio. Go through the archives for interviews with Sarah Karloff, Victoria Price, and Joel Hodgson. Listen to discussions about movies like Creature from the Black Lagoon, Island of Terror, and King Kong. And don't forget convention coverage from Monster Bash and the HP Lovecraft Film Festival. Classic Monsters. Modern Talk and the head of Rondo Hatton, only on Monster Kid Radio! Black Clock Audio Tales is brought to you by BunnySlippers.com and Found Item Clothing. Check them out at BunnySlippers.com and Found Item Clothing. Keep warm this winter, keep your feet warm, and uh, if you're over in the Southern Hemisphere, you can check out the cool t-shirts. Uh, yeah, anyone can check out the cool t-shirts, but hey, it's summertime down there. And hey, this is Black Clock Audio Tales, hosted by me, D.B. Spitzer. Just got back from the H.P. Lovecraft Film Festival the other day. Man, was it good. Listen for an upcoming episode about the H.P. Lovecraft Film Festival from The People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos, the other show that's on this podcast feed. And hey, check it out. We're going to have a new show coming up. It's not going to stay on this podcast feed, but we're going to feature it on this podcast feed at first. It's called... Articulate warbling, or that's not rave, that's not ranting, that's articulate warbling, with uh, past guest uh, Zach Ferguson, author, and uh, yeah, so why don't you sit back and listen to one of the many stories we're about to tell you for the rest of this week, uh, month, actually, we've got a month of ghost stories, so, you know, if, if you like ghost stories, you want to listen to them, why not go to pgttcm? Potbean.com and donate. Become a member of one of our various uh, cults or uh, fan cults. We've got the t-shirt cult, we've got the beer cult, we've got the advert cult, and then we've got the spectral cult for people who just want their names and just want to donate a buck a month. I mean, hey, that's pretty cool. And you can always check us out at pgttcm.com, pgttcm.potbean.com. We're on Facebook, we're on Stitcher, I think we're on Spotify. Uh, We are on Instagram, and we are on Twitter, even though eh, I don't really use it. Thank you so much, and hey, ghost stories, rate, review, subscribe. His Dead Wife's Photograph This story created a sensation when it was first told. It appeared in the papers, and many big physicists and natural philosophers were, at least so they thought, able to explain the phenomenon. I shall narrate the event and also tell the reader what explanation was given and let him draw his own conclusions. This is what happened. A friend of mine, a clerk in the same office as myself, was an amateur photographer. Let's call him Jones. Jones had a half-plate, Sanders camera with a Ross lens and a Thornton Picard behind lens shutter with pneumatic release. The plate in question was a Rattan's Ordinary, developed with Ilford Pyro Soda Developer prepared at home. All these particulars I give for the benefit of the more technical reader. Mr. Smith, another clerk in our office, 
invited Mr. Jones to take the likeness of his wife and sister-in-law. This sister-in-law was the wife of Mr. Smith's elder brother, who was also a government servant, then on leave. The idea of the photograph was that of the sister-in-law. Jones was a keen photographer himself. He had photographed everybody in the office, including the peons and sweepers, and had even supplied every sitter with his copies of his handiwork. So he most willingly consented, and anxiously waited for the Sunday on which the photograph was to be taken. Early on Sunday morning, Jones went to the Smiths. The arrangement of light in the veranda was such that a photograph could only be taken after midday, so he stayed there to breakfast. About one in the afternoon, all arrangements were complete, and the two ladies, Mrs. Smiths, were made to sit in two cane chairs, and after long and careful focusing, and moving the camera for about an hour, Jones was satisfied at last, and an exposure was made. Mr. Jones was sure that the plate was all right, and so a second plate was not exposed, although in the usual course of things this should have been done. He wrapped up his things and went home, promising to develop the plate the same night and bring a copy of the photograph the next day to the office. The next day, which was Monday, Jones came to the office very early, and I was the first person to meet him. "'Well, Mr. Photographer,' I asked, "'what success?' "'I got the picture all right,' said Jones, unwrapping an unmounted picture and handing it over to me. "'Most funny, don't you think so?' "'No, I don't think it's all right. At any rate, I did not expect anything better from you,' I said. "'No,' said Jones. "'The funny thing is that the two ladies sat.' "'Quite right,' I said. "'The third stood in the middle.' "'There was no third lady at all there,' said Jones. "'Then you imagine she was there, and there we find her. "'I tell you, there were only two ladies there when I exposed,' insisted Jones. "'He was looking awfully worried.' "'Do you want me to believe that there were only two persons when the plate was exposed and three when it was developed?' I asked. "'That is exactly what has happened,' said Jones. "'Then it must be the most wonderful developer you used. Or was it that this was the second exposure given to the same plate? The developer is the one which I have been using for the last three years.' and the plate, the one I charged on Saturday night, out of the new box that I had purchased only on Saturday afternoon. A number of other clerks had come up in the meantime, and were taking great interest in the picture and in Jones' statement. It is only right that a description of the picture be given here for the benefit of the reader. I wish I could reproduce the original picture, too, but that for certain reasons is impossible." When the plate was actually exposed, there were only two ladies, both of whom were sitting in cane chairs. When the plate was developed, it was found that there was in the picture a figure, that of a lady, standing in the middle. She wore a broad-edged dhoti. The reader should not forget that all the characters are Indians, only the upper half of her body being visible, the lower being covered up by the low backs of the cane chairs. She was distinctly behind the chairs, and consequently slightly out of focus. Still, everything was quite clear. Even her long necklace was visible through the little opening in the dhoti near the right shoulder. She was resting her hands on the back of the chairs, and the fingers were nearly totally out of focus, but a ring on the right finger was clearly visible. 
she looked like a handsome young woman of twenty-two short and thin one of the earrings was also clearly visible although the face itself was slightly out of focus one thing and probably the funniest thing that we overlooked then but observed afterwards was that immediately behind the three ladies was a barred window the two ladies who were one on each side covered up the bars to a certain height from the bottom with their bodies but the lady in the middle was partly transparent because the bars of the window were very faintly visible through her this fact however as i have said already we did not observe then we only laughed at jones and tried to assure him that he was either drunk or asleep at this moment smith of our office walked in removing the trouser clips from his legs smith took the unmounted photograph looked at it for a minute turned red and blue and green and finally very pale of course we asked him what the matter was and this was what he said the third lady in the middle was my first wife who has been dead these eight years before her death she asked me a number of times to have her photograph taken she used to say that she had a presentiment that she might die early i did not believe in her presentiment myself but i did not object to the photograph so one day i ordered the carriage and asked her to dress up we intended to go to a good professional she dressed up and the carriage was ready but as we were going to start news reached us that her mother was dangerously ill so we went to see her mother instead the mother was very ill and i had to leave her there immediately afterwards i was sent away on duty to another station and so could not bring her back it was in fact after full three months and a half that i returned and then thought her mother was all right my wife was not within fifteen days of my return she died of puerperal fever after childbirth and the child died too a photograph of her was never taken when she dressed up for the last time on the day that she left my home she had the necklace and the earrings on as you see her wearing in the photograph my present wife has them now but she does not generally put them on this was too big a pill for me to swallow so i at once took french leave from my office bagged the photograph and rushed out on my bicycle i went to mr smith's house and looked mrs smith up of course she was much astonished to see a third lady in the picture but could not guess who she was this i had expected as supposing smith's story to be true this lady had never seen her husband's first wife the elder brother's wife however recognized the likeness at once and she virtually repeated the story which smith had told me earlier that day she even brought out the necklace and the earrings for my inspection and conviction they were the same as those in the photograph all the principal newspapers of that time got hold of the fact and within a week there was any number of applications for the ghostly photograph but mr jones refused to supply copies of it to anybody for various reasons the principal being that smith would not allow it i am however the fortunate possessor of a copy which for obvious reasons i am not allowed to show to anybody one copy of the picture was sent to america and another to england i do not now remember exactly to whom my own copy i showed to the reverend father m a d s c b d etc 
and asked him to find out a scientific explanation for the phenomenon. The following explanation was given by the gentleman. I am afraid I shall not be able to reproduce the learned father's exact words, but this is what he meant, or at least what I understood him to mean. The girl in question was dressed in this particular way on an occasion, say ten years ago. Her image was cast on space, and the reflection was projected from one luminous body, one planet, on another till it made a circuit of millions and millions of miles in space, and then came back to earth at the exact moment when our friend Mr. Jones was going to make the exposure. Take, for instance, the case of a man who is taking a photograph of a mirage. He is photographing place X from place Y. When X and Y are, say, 200 miles apart, and it may be that his camera is facing east while placing X is actually towards the west of place Y. In school I had read a little of science and chemistry, and could make a dry analysis of a salt, but this was an item too big for my limited comprehension. The fact, however, remains, and I believe it, that Smith's first wife did come back to this terrestrial globe of ours over eight years ago after her death to give a sitting for a photograph in a form which, though it did not affect the retina of our eye, did impress a sensitized plate, in a form that did not affect the retina of the eye, I say, because Jones must have been looking at his sitters at the time when he was pressing the bulb of the pneumatic release of his time and instantaneous shudder. The story is most wonderful, but this is exactly what happened. Smith says this is the first time he has ever seen or heard from his dead wife. It's popularly believed in India that a dead wife gives a lot of trouble if she ever revisits this earth. But this is, thank God, not the experience of my friend Mr. Smith. It is now over seven years since the event mentioned above happened, and the dead girl has never appeared again. I would very much like to have a photograph of the two ladies taken once more, but I have never ventured to approach Smith with a proposal. In fact, I learnt photography myself with a view to take the photograph of the two ladies, but as I have said, I have never been able to speak to Smith about my intention, and probably never shall. The ten pounds that I spent on my cheap photographic outfit may be a waste. But I have learnt an art which, though rather costly for my limited means, is nevertheless an art worth learning. End of Story 19 THE MAJOR'S LEASE by S. McCurgy. A curious little story was told the other day in a certain civil court in British India. A certain military officer, let's call him Major Brown, rented a house in one of the big cantonment stations where he had been recently transferred with his regiment. This gentleman had just arrived from England with his wife. He was the son of a rich man at home, and so he could afford to have a large house. This was the first time he had come out to India, and was consequently rather unacquainted with the manners and customs of this country. Major Brown took this house on a long lease, and thought he had made a bargain. The house was large and stood in the center of a very spacious compound. There was a garden which appeared to have been carefully laid out once, but as the house had no tenant for a long time, 
the garden looked more like a wilderness. There were two very well-kept lawn tennis courts, and these were a great attraction to the major, who was very keen on tennis. The stablings and outhouses were commodious, and the major, who was thinking of keeping a few polo ponies, found the whole thing very satisfactory. Over and above everything he found the landlord very obliging. He had heard on board the steamer, on his way out, that India landlords were the worst class of human beings one could come across on the face of this earth, and that is very true. But this particular landlord looked like an exception to the general rule. He consented to make at his own expense all the alterations that the Major wanted him to do, and these alterations were carried out to Major and Mrs. Brown's entire satisfaction. On his arrival in this station, Major Brown had put up at a hotel, and after some alternations had been made, he ordered the house to be furnished. This was done in three or four days, and then he moved in. Annexed is a rough sketch of the house in question. The house was a very large one, and there was a number of rooms, but we have nothing to do with all of them. The spots marked C and E represent the doors. Now what happened in court was this. After he had occupied the house for not over three weeks, the major and his wife cleared out and took shelter again in the hotel from which they had come. The landlord demanded rent for the entire period, stipulated for in the lease, and the major refused to pay. The matter went to court. The presiding judge, who was an Indian gentleman, was one of the cleverest men in the service, and he thought it was a very simple case. When the case was called on, the plaintiff's pleader said that he would begin by proving the lease. Major Brown, the defendant, who appeared in person, said that he would admit it. The judge, who was a very kind-hearted gentleman, asked the defendant why he had vacated the house. "'I could not stay,' said the major. "'I had every intention of living in the house.' I got it furnished and spent two thousand rupees over it. I was laying out a garden. But what do you mean by saying that you could not stay? If your honor passed a night in that house, you would understand what I meant, said the major. You take the oath and make a statement, said the judge. Major Brown then made the following statement on oath in open court. When I came to the station, I saw the house and my wife liked it. We asked the landlord whether he would make a few alterations, and he consented. After the alterations had been carried out, I executed the lease and ordered the house to be furnished. A week after the execution of the lease, we moved in. The house is very large. Here followed a description of the building, but to make matters clear and short, I have copied out a rough pencil sketch which is still on the record of the case and marked the doors and rooms, as the major had done, with letters. I do not dine at the mess. I have an early dinner at home with my wife and retire early. My wife and I sleep in the same bedroom, the room marked G on the plan, and we are generally in bed about eleven o'clock at night. The servants all go away to the outhouses, which are at a distance of about forty yards from the main building. Only one jamadar, porter, remains in the front veranda. This jamadar also keeps an eye on the whole main building. Besides, I have got a good, faithful watchdog which I brought out from home. He stays outside with the jamadar. 
For the first fifteen days we were quite comfortable. Then the trouble began. One night before dinner my wife was reading a story, a detective story, of a particularly interesting nature. There were only a few more pages left, and so we thought she would finish them before we put out the reading lamp. We were in the bedroom, but it took her much longer than she had expected it would, and so it was actually a half an hour after midnight when we put out our sixteen-candle-power reading lamp which stood on a teapoy near the head of the beds. Only a small bedroom lamp remained. But though we put out the light, we did not fall asleep. We were discussing the cleverness of the detective and the folly of the thief who had left a clue behind, and it was actually two o'clock when we pulled our rugs up to our necks and closed our eyes. At that moment we heard footsteps of a number of persons walking along the corridor. The corridor runs the whole length of the house, as will appear from the rough sketch. This corridor was well carpeted. Still we heard the tread of a number of feet. We looked at the door C. This door was closed but not bolted from inside. Slowly it was pushed open, and horror of horrors, three shadowy forms walked into the room. One was distinctly the form of a white man in European night attire, another the form of a white woman, also in night attire, and the third was the form of a black woman, probably an Indian nurse or ayah. We remained dumb with horror, as we could see clearly that these unwelcome visitors were not of this world. We could not move. The three figures passed right around the beds, as if searching for something. They looked into every nook and corner of the bedroom, and then passed into the dressing-room. Within half a minute they returned, and passed out into the corridor in the same order in which they had come in, namely, the man first, the white woman next, and the black woman last of all. We lay as if dead. We could hear them in the corridor and in the bedroom adjoining, with the door E, and in the dressing-room attached to that bedroom. They again returned and passed into the corridor, and then we could hear them no more. It must have taken me at least five minutes to collect my senses and to bring my limbs under control. When I got up I found that my wife had fainted. I hurried out of the room, rushed along the corridor, opened the front door and called the servants. The servants were all approaching the house across the land which separated the servants' quarters from the main building. Then I went into the dining-room, and, procuring some brandy, gave it to my wife. It was with some difficulty that I could make her swallow it, but it revived her, and she looked at me with a bewildered smile on her face. The servants had in the meantime arrived and were in the corridor. Their presence had the effect of giving us some courage. Leaving my wife in bed, I went out and related to the servants what I had seen. The Chowkidar, the night watchman, was an old resident of the compound. In fact, he had been in charge of the house when it was vacant, before I rented it, gave me the history of the ghost, which my Jamadar interpreted to me. I have brought the Chowkidar, and shall produce him as my witness. This was the statement of the Major. Then there was the statement of Jokai Passi, Chowkidar, defendant's witness. The statement of this witness, as recorded, was as follows. My age is sixty years. At the time of the Indian mutiny, I was a full-grown young man. 
This house was built at that time. I mean two or three years after the mutiny. I have always been in charge. After the mutiny, one judge came to live in the house. He was called Judge Parson, probably Pearson. The judge had to try a young Mohammedan charged with murder, and he sentenced the youth to death. The aged parents of the young man vowed vengeance against the good judge. On the night following the morning on which the execution took place, it appeared that certain undesirable characters were prowling about the compound. I was then the watchman in charge as I am now. I woke up the Indian nurse who slept with the judge's baby in a bedroom adjoining the one in which the judge himself slept. On waking up she found that the baby was not in its cot. She rushed out of the bedroom and informed the judge and his wife. Then a feverish search began for the baby, but it was never found. The police were communicated with and they arrived at about four in the morning. The police inquiry lasted for about half an hour, and then the officers went away promising to come again. At last the judge, his wife, and nurse all retired to their respective beds where they were found lying dead later in the morning. Another police inquiry took place, and it was found that the death was due to snake-bite. There were two small punctures on one leg of each victim. How a snake got in and killed each victim in turn, especially when two slept in one room and a third in another, finally got out, has remained a mystery. But the judge, his wife, and the nurse are still seen on every Friday night looking for the missing baby. One rainy season the servants' quarters were being re-roofed. I had then an occasion to sleep in the corridor, and thus I saw the ghosts. At that time I was afraid as the Major Sahib is today, but then I soon found out that the ghosts were quite harmless. This was the story as recorded in court. The judge was a very sensible man. I had the pleasure and honor of being introduced to him about twenty years after this incident, and with a number of people he decided to pass one Friday night in the haunted house. He did so. What he saw does not appear from the record, for he left no inspection notes and probably he never made any. He delivered judgment on Monday following. It is a very short judgment. After reciting the facts, the judgment proceeds. I have recorded the statements of the defendant and a witness produced by him. I have also made a local inspection. I find that the landlord, the plaintiff, knew that for certain reasons the house was practically uninhabitable, and he concealed that fact from his tenant. He, therefore, could not recover. The suit is dismissed with costs. The haunted house remained untenanted for a long time. The proprietor subsequently made a gift of it to a charitable institution. The founders of this institution, who were Hindus and firm believers in charms and exorcisms, had some religious ceremony performed on the premises. Afterwards the house was pulled down, and on its site now stands one of the grandest buildings in the station, that cost fully ten thousand pounds. Only this morning I received a visit from a gentleman who lives in the building, referred to above, but evidently he has not even heard of the ghosts of the judge, his wife, and his Indian ayah. It is now nearly fifty years, but the missing baby has not been heard of. 
if it is alive it has grown into a fully developed man but does he know the fate of his parents and his nurse in this connection it will not be out of place to mention a fact that appeared in the papers some years ago a certain european gentleman was posted to a district in the madras presidency as a government servant in the financial department when this gentleman reached the station to which he had been posted he put up at the club as they usually do and began to look out for a house when he was informed that there was a haunted house in the neighborhood being rather skeptical he decided to take this house ghost or no ghost he was given to understand by the members of the club that this house was a bit out of the way and was infested at night with thieves and robbers who came to divide their booty in that house and to guard against its being occupied by a tenant it had been given a bad reputation the proprietor being a wealthy old native of the old school did not care to investigate so our friend whom we shall for the purpose of this story call mr hunter took the house at a fair rent the house was in charge of a chaudicar caretaker porter or watchman when it was vacant mr hunter engaged the same man as night watchman for this house this chaudicar informed mr hunter that the ghost appeared only one day in the year namely the twenty-first of september and added that if mr hunter kept out of the house on that night there would be no trouble i always keep away on the night of the twenty-first september said the watchman and what kind of ghost is it asked mr hunter it is a european lady dressed in white said the man what does she do asked mr hunter oh she comes out of the room and calls you and asks you to follow her said the man has anybody ever followed her nobody that i know of sir said the man the man who was here before me saw her and died from fear most wonderful but why do not people follow her in a body asked mr hunter it is very easy to say that sir but when you see her you will not like to follow her yourself i have been in this house for over twenty years lots of times european soldiers have passed the night of the twenty-first september intending to follow her but when she actually comes nobody has ever ventured most wonderful i shall follow her this time said mr hunter as you please sir said the man and retired it was one of the duties of mr hunter to distribute the pensions of all retired government servants in this connection mr hunter used to come in contact with a number of very old men in the station who attended his office to receive their pensions from him by questioning them mr hunter got so far that the house had once been occupied by a european officer this officer had a young wife who fell in love with a certain captain leslie one night when the husband was out on tour and not expected to return within a week his wife was entertaining captain leslie the gentleman returned unexpectedly and found his wife in the arms of the captain he lost his self-control and attacked the couple with a meat chopper the first weapon that came handy captain leslie moved away and then cleared out leaving the unfortunate wife at the mercy of the infuriated husband he aimed a blow at her head which she warded off with her hand but so severe was the blow that the hand was cut off and the woman fell down on the ground quite unconscious the sight of blood made the husband mad 
subsequently the servants came up and called a doctor but by the time the doctor arrived the woman was dead the unfortunate husband who had become raving mad was sent to a lunatic asylum and thence taken away to england the body of the woman was in the local cemetery but what had become of the severed hand was not known the missing limb was never found all this was fifty years ago that is immediately after the indian mutiny this was what mr hunter gathered the twenty-first september was not very far off mr hunter decided to meet the ghost the night in question arrived and mr hunter sat in his bedroom with his magazine the lamp was burning brightly the servants had all retired and mr hunter knew that if he called for help nobody would hear him and even if anybody did hear he too would not come he was however a very bold man and sat there awaiting developments at one in the morning he heard footsteps approaching the bedroom from the direction of the dining-room he could distinctly hear the rustle of the skirts gradually the door between the two rooms began to open wide the curtains began to move mr hunter sat with straining eyes and beating heart at last she came in the englishwoman in flowing white robes mr hunter sat panting unable to move she looked at him for about a minute and beckoned him to follow her it was then that mr hunter observed that she had only one hand he got up and followed her she went back to the dining-room and he followed her there there was no light in the dining-room but he could see her faintly in the dark she went right across the dining-room to the door on the other side which opened on the veranda mr hunter could not see what she was doing at the door but he knew she was opening it when the door was open she passed out and mr hunter followed then she walked across the veranda down the steps and stood upon the lawn mr hunter was on the lawn in a moment his fears now completely vanished she next proceeded along the lawn in the direction of a hedge mr hunter also reached the hedge and found that under the hedge were concealed two spades the gardener must have been working with them and left them there after the day's work the lady made a sign to him and he took up one of the spades then again she proceeded and he followed they had reached some distance in the garden when the lady with her foot indicated a spot and mr hunter inferred that she wanted him to dig there of course mr hunter knew that he was not going to discover a treasure trove but he was sure he was going to find something very interesting so he began digging with all his vigor only about eighteen inches below the surface the blade struck against some hard substance mr hunter looked up the apparition had vanished mr hunter dug on and discovered that the hard substance was a human hand with the fingers and everything intact of course the flesh had gone only the bones remained mr hunter picked up the bones and knew exactly what to do he returned to the house dressed himself up in his cycling costume and rode away with the bones and the spade to the cemetery he waked the night watchman, got the gate opened, found out the tomb of the murdered woman, and close to it interred the bones, that he had found in such a mysterious fashion, reciting as much of the service as he could remember. 
then he paid some bookshees reward to the night watchman and came home he put back the spade in its old place and retired a few days after he paid a visit to the cemetery in the daytime and found that grass had grown on the spot which he had dug up the bones had evidently not been disturbed the next year on the twenty first december mr hunter kept up the whole night but he had no visit from the ghostly lady the house is now in the occupation of another european gentleman who took it after mr hunter's transfer from the station and this new tenant had no visit from the ghost either let us hope that she now rests in peace the following extract from a bengal newspaper that appeared in september nineteen thirteen is very interesting and instructive the following extraordinary phenomenon took place at the hoogley police club building Shinshura, at about midnight on last saturday at this late hour of the night some peculiar sounds of agony on the roof of the house aroused the resident members of the club who at once proceeded to the roof with lamps and found to their entire surprise a lady clad in white jumping from the roof to the ground about a hundred feet in height followed by a man with a dagger in his hands but eventually no trace of it could be found on the ground this is not the first occasion that such beings are found to visit this house and it is heard from a reliable source that long ago a woman committed suicide by hanging and it is believed that her spirit loiters around the building as these incidents have made a deep impression upon the members they have decided to remove the club from the said buildings End of story 20.